In today's episode, I want to address the intentions of this podcast, why it was started, and also what our ultimate goal is, our end game, as it were. I felt this had to be brought up because of something that happened over this past week, which, when I caught wind of it, completely caught me off guard. And it upset me because it was a clear misinterpretation of what this podcast is all about. I had always thought I'd been straightforward from the very first episode on what my intent was, to comb through every detail that's been put out there in one form or another on the Johnny Gosh disappearance case, reminding everyone along the way that I do not claim anything to be fact. If I come up with a theory or if I agree with somebody else's theory, I want to remind everyone that it's simply a hypothesis on something that may have happened. To me, that's how you navigate an open case. You gather all the information that's been put out there over the years, all of which is public and can be found through some extensive internet searches, and you navigate. You address the items that don't make sense. You put them to bed and you move forward. As for why I do this podcast, I've been asked that question since the very beginning. Considering Johnny's disappearance happened two years before I was born and I have no personal connection to his case. But in the recent weeks, let's just say that this question has been asked much more aggressively. And it has led to, yet again with this case, bad information being put out there. So for my first segment today, I'm going to clarify what we're doing with this podcast and where we go from here. And then after that, I would like to move on with explaining the information we've revealed in the last few episodes and continue to explore this idea that Johnny Gosh's kidnapping was not carried out by someone connected to a nationwide ring fraught with ritualistic practices or espionage and so forth, but by someone local who may or may not have known Johnny. This is episode 22 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. faded out on Facebook, you saw that I have taken down the Patreon that I set up for this podcast. The reason I had it set up in the first place is because maintaining a podcast costs money. Just to pull back the curtain a little bit on how it works, to have a podcast, you need to have it up on a hosting site. I have my podcasts up on Libsyn. These websites are basically a hub that blasts it out to all the podcasting platforms at once, like iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, everyone that you can think of. So to have a podcast up on a hosting site, you pay a monthly fee. I pay for my podcasts out of my own pocket, So when I started this Patreon, it was to help cover this type of expense. And also if I were to ever do more, such as travel to locations where these events happen, because keep in mind, I'm from Connecticut, or if I wanted to submit a request to the Freedom of Information Act, or if I needed to buy a new voice recorder. These were the types of items I was hoping to cover, and it was meant as a community effort. Because since I began this podcast, it has gained an extremely loyal following, and the number of downloads has exploded loaded in a very short amount of time, which is why I've said it's bigger than me at this point. I had gotten about five people to contribute on Patreon, and it was at about $55 a month. 
So just the other day, it started off as a completely normal day until I got a message from a listener telling me he had something important to tell me. And when I asked him what it was, he sent me a screenshot of something that Noreen Gosh posted on her Facebook page. It was a picture of me and she had written, this is a photo of Sarah Dimio. She is presently portraying herself as an investigator on the Johnny Gosh case. She is also through social media and a website soliciting funds for her project. Sarah Dimio is not an investigator on the Johnny Gosh case and is not affiliated with the Johnny Gosh Foundation nor Noreen Gosh. Her attempts to solicit funding by her are not sanctioned by the Johnny Gosh Foundation or Noreen Gosh. We do not accept responsibility for anything this woman's actions. So I was devastated when I saw this, mainly because Noreen seemed to have such a misunderstanding of what I've been trying to do here. And I said in a few of my early episodes, I did attempt to reach out to Noreen by phone and by mail explaining who I was, and I got no response. And I also said if she chooses not to get back to me, then I have to accept that. But I did not want her to think that my having a Patreon was an attempt to benefit financially off of this case. So to be totally transparent, I deleted the Patreon immediately. I started this podcast on my own, so that's exactly what I will keep doing. So I commented on this picture of me and I wrote, I am not soliciting any funds. I am a podcaster. I do a podcast attempting to investigate the Johnny Gosh case called Faded Out. I had a Patreon page to help cover any costs of making the podcast, which was at $55 a month. That's all. But I see how my intentions may have been misunderstood, so I have disabled the Patreon page and will not collect anything more from it. I always felt that I was being clear in stating on this podcast, I do not fancy myself an investigator. I'm a storyteller. And I'm approaching this the way most people have, as an outsider, not an insider. So any claim that states that I'm going around calling myself an investigator on the case or that I'm profiting from it, it's all complete fallacy. I don't make any money off of this podcast. There's no sponsor. You'll notice I've never read an ad on here. So maybe if you're listening to this and you see an untrue claim about me anywhere online, feel free to simply say, well, actually, Sarah Dimio is a a podcaster who just wants to know what really happened. Here's the link to fade it out. But I'm not going to use up this whole time to whine about that. I'm bringing it up because this kind of thing is the fundamental problem into why this case has never been solved. And I'm sorry to say, possibly cannot be solved. It seems to me that there's a lot of people who I see online, both connected and not connected to the case, who are of a mindset that the only way to keep Johnny's case alive is to keep pushing the uncorroborated information, the outlandish claims of international pedophile rings, reaching the White House, reaching other countries, the conspiracy theories that talk about the Monarch program or the Illuminati or MKUltra or other silly things like that. I want to remind you of something that Johnny's dad, John Sr., said to me when I had the chance to speak to him. What do you think about, because like Noreen had, I know that it's it's out of print now, but she self-published a book in the year 2000. And um, do you think some of the the claims that are in that book, I know she didn't write the whole thing. I know that she had help writing it, but um, I, I think maybe some of the information that's in that book has maybe kind of, hampered the investigation because there's a lot of uncorroborated information in there. 
I never bought the book, and I never read one sentence out of it. So okay. I can't even comment on it. <laughs> <clears throat> I wasn't going to give her the satisfaction of, of her doing something that was probably not correct. Okay, and, well, and... I guess I'm wondering, do you think that anything that Noreen has said over the years has maybe kind of hurt the investigation? Oh, I'm sure it has. From from the get-go, actually. There was an individual by the name of John Wooden. I don't know if you ever heard of him or not. And I I don't know if he's even still alive. He was an older gentleman that came to Des Moines just a week or so after Johnny was kidnapped or Mm -hmm. several weeks after and in defense of children was his his program that he started and um he made the statement saying whatever you have to do keep story alive do it because if you don't do it law enforcement will forget about it in a few weeks and go the merry way well she just lit onto that thing and um which we needed mm-hmm. to keep it going. So um, all the programs and all that stuff did every, almost every night of the week and on weekends, traveled here, traveled there and doing this. But uh, it wasn't one bit fun. So yeah. and never knowing, never knowing if the SOB that kidnapped your son was sitting right there in the crowd. I talk a lot about the misinformation effect, bad information causing false memory. The thing with this is, this is 36 years worth of bad information. It is so widespread and so convoluted that I fear it's past the point of no return. So I think it's reached a point that it's more comforting, for lack of a better word, to stick with the narrative that an organized pedophile ring with connections all across the country picked Johnny out, orchestrated how they would grab him that morning, carried out that plan, that Paul Benassi, who, mind you, was from Nebraska, was in West Des Moines, Iowa that morning helping in this kidnapping, and that after Johnny was sold into this ring, he lived long into adulthood and came and visited Noreen in the middle of the night in 1997 and has since been living his life in hiding. All of that has been the timeline that Noreen Gosh has followed for the past three decades. So it's become such a staple that it makes more sense to stand by that than to go all the way back to September 5th, 1982 and say, maybe it was someone local all along. There is a little bit more of an answer to the question of why to believe that Johnny was part of a large, organized thing such as child prostitution and pedophilia than to believe that Johnny was just a victim of a crime of opportunity. Noreen also mentioned that she has information on her son's case that no one else has. Info that she gained over the years through her own private investigators, things that even Johnny's father doesn't know. And she says that she will not share it with the world, and it's not something that's open for discussion. And while I can't control that, and the fact is, the sun will still rise tomorrow, even if Johnny's case is never closed, I guess the only issue that I have with that is... It doesn't memorialize Johnny in any way to shroud his case in mystery and intrigue and leave people with more questions than answers, all the while not questioning the actions of anyone who knew Johnny, whether it was at the Des Moines Register or at the mall or any adult that he may have had contact with. 
it doesn't memorialize someone to never have an answer to what happened to them or where their remains are buried. All that does is ensure that whoever did it got away with it. And even if the guilty party is dead now, they should still be remembered and known to the general public as the guilty party. That should be their quote-unquote legacy. There is something to be said for not wanting to admit that the leads you've been given over the years have paid money for and have believed and even come to accept could possibly be wrong. It is not a position that any person would want to be in to go back and take a hard look at actual evidence and circumstances and real witness accounts as opposed to misrepresented witness accounts. But I think back to what John told me in my last episode. Johnny was the victim in this. He was a 12-year-old boy who never had a chance at life. So everyone else's pride aside, this is a boy who deserves to have his case be closed. And to answer the question of why I have taken such an interest in Johnny's case, I can't really give any more of an explanation than I already have in the early episodes. I said to Ron Sampson and to John Gosh, it hit me in a weird way. I don't know how else to say it. I don't seem to be the only one who has an interest in Johnny. Like I said, I do get a lot of listeners. I get messages from people quite often saying that they've been fascinated by this case for years and so on. So I think I'm no different. I'm just the person in broadcasting who made a podcast as a result of it. And that's the only explanation I'm going to give because frankly, I don't owe anyone an explanation. I'm just a human being giving a voice to another human being who hasn't had one in 36 years. So this podcast is not going anywhere for a while, at least up until I have no more story to tell. I want to get back to some of the things I talked about with Johnny's dad, specifically Paul Benassi. Up until now, I always took Benassi at his word, but since I started to learn some new things, talk to listeners, and especially since talking to John Sr., I have to say my feelings have changed. So in my next segment, we're going to take another look at Paul Benassi, and I want you to really think for a minute if you feel the same way about his story that you did when you first learned of him. That's up next. Personally, in my last two episodes with Ron Sampson and with John Gosh Sr., I thought it was very interesting when we got to the subject of Paul Benassi. So let me just play for you again each of their responses when Benassi's name was brought up. Here's Ron Sampson. You know, I don't know. Uh, John has his doubts about Paul Benassi because he he tried to prod him a couple times on some characteristics or some uh, profile things about Johnny that that would be obvious if you actually had ever seen Johnny. And, and Johnny was the size of a man. He was 5'8", and Benassi said, oh, he might be 5'2", or 5'3". Yeah. So 
you know, some things just didn't add up. And so, but John, if John's anything, he is a healthy skeptic. And, you know, he, he wants, he, he'll believe you, but you have to prove it first. And here's John. I went to the prison over in Lincoln, Nebraska, <clears throat> and didn't have anybody that was a lookalike or okay. anything else. <clears throat> I went with John to camp to the prison the first time. Okay. And just John to camp and myself, we went there. And when we got there and met Panasi, you know, I just said to him, you know, how tall, how, how tall was Johnny when you saw him? Um, and Benassi was probably five, 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 six, something relatively right. short. <clears throat> and he said, oh, it came up about my chin. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and I said, okay. Well, Johnny was five, eight, when he was kidnapped, five nines in that area. And so I, I knew that he was blowing some hot smoke. <clears throat> I asked the, uh, the guard at the prison, I said, what does he going to have in his room, or in his uh, cell, back there? He said, it's plastered with all kinds of newspaper articles on Johnny. I said, okay. <clears throat> so he studied this whole thing, trying, okay. trying to find a way to get out of here. So as I've explained before, Paul Benassi came forward in 1989 when he told his lawyer, John DeCamp, that he was a participant in the kidnapping of Johnny Gosh. And according to Benassi, he was a teenager at the time, and it was his job to hold the chloroform over Johnny's face until he passed out. The next notch in the timeline that we as the general public know of is on America's Most Wanted, when Noreen went to meet Benassi at the Lincoln Correctional Center. So while there, he reveals to her some information that only someone who had seen Johnny or had known something about him would have been able to recall. Some of the things he knew was that Johnny had a scar in the shape of South America. He also knew that there was another van spotted that appeared to be transferring a body in the area. And another thing he mentions is that Johnny did some kind of breathing that you would do in yoga, like yoga breaths. And he also said that Johnny had kind of a stammer when he got upset. Well, let's think about this for a second and keep in mind what Johnny's dad told me. All of this is stuff that you can find out by reading early newspaper reports. Even the yoga breathing, that's as easy as looking in a phone book or watching a news report to find out that Johnny's mother taught yoga. As for the stammer when he got upset, well, for one thing, most people stammer when they're that level of upset. The kind of upset and terrified that Johnny would have had to have been in that moment. But the other thing is, when I first got in touch with Chris Burge, who knew Johnny, he told me that he never heard Johnny stammer. So remember back when I spoke to David Bielinson, the director of Who Took Johnny, and I asked about Paul Benassi? He said something to the effect of, it would take a mastermind, the likes of which we'd never seen, to pull off a lie like that. Well... Would it, though? Because when you take a step back and look at Benassi's whole story, very little of it actually involves Johnny. The rest of it is blanks that Benassi filled in by talking about his actual involvement in the Franklin scandal, which did happen and he was a part of, and showing America's Most Wanted the abandoned house in Colorado. Well, it is entirely possible that Paul Benassi had spent time at that abandoned house and that there were bad things going on there. But does that mean that Johnny was there? The police never believed Benassi's story, and I think what's been happening is that... 
For anyone who has been following this story closely, we've been attributing that to a lack of a response on the part of the police. But you have to remember that the 45 minutes that it took police to arrive at the Gosh house after the initial call, when they believed that he was just a runaway, and then years later, the investigation that was going on after it was realized that he wasn't just a runaway, those are two separate instances. You can't just put everything in the Johnny Gosh case under the umbrella of all police are wrong. And I want to point out something to you that has always seemed a little bit off to me, by which I mean it fell off even back when I fully believed Benassi's account of what happened. And now this does not necessarily mean anything, especially considering everything that a filmmaker can do with editing and the tone of their questioning and a lot of other factors. But I just want you to notice a difference in demeanor in these clips that I'm about to play. Here's Paul Benassi in the documentary Who Took Johnny? I, I don't know who they all are. All I know is, is the guys that were controlling everything. I, I was not a kept kid. I was not a, a one for sale that way because I was doing things other for them that they couldn't, didn't want to sell me. <clears throat> Plus, I was damaged goods. And here's one more. And Johnny got bought by a guy that was actually in Colorado, so he ended up there, and he been with a lot of guys there too that this guy had made him for money so but he never got the money the guy got the money <clears throat> and now here's Paul Benassi in Conspiracy of Silence the film that was made for the Discovery Channel in 1994 but was ultimately pulled this is the part where Benassi is driving around Boys Town explaining how he would pull up to the young boys invite them to the sex parties thrown by Lawrence King Paul Bonassi was a victim of King's abuse. He was also sent by King to lure Boys Town youngsters off campus. We used to just drive around and go up toward a home. That's when we used to do some of the uh, scavenger hunts with picking up some of the kids. You know, just kind of win their confidence, become friends with them for a while. Start inviting them to the parties. The kids were 10 years old or older. Did you hear the pauses in the clips from Who Took Johnny and the throat clearing? He's much more relaxed in Conspiracy of Silence while he's driving around talking about how he would coerce these young boys. Of any video clip I've ever seen of Benassi, I've never seen him look that comfortable. And he's noticeably on edge in any video clip in regards to Johnny Gosh, whether it's America's Most Wanted or Who Took Johnny. So I did notice that from the very beginning. But I do realize that that is a bit of a reach. So that is where I will leave that detail. But I would like to play you a clip from America's MIA children of Dr. Judy Ann Denson-Gerber, where she speaks about some of her sessions with Benassi. Interestingly enough, I had a very, uh, what will I say, uh, goose pimply kind of experience with Benassi in that when we were talking about another very famous child, Eten Payan, who is hate uh, as some people pronounce it, whose parents have, as the Gashas have, spent uh, endless hours uh, searching for their lost son and much pain. Uh, actually, I did ask, have you seen him? And uh, he said he didn't know. And he wasn't sure. She mentioned Aton Pates. Aton Pates was another missing child who was arguably the first to be put on the side of a milk carton. He was from New York, and he disappeared without a trace at the age of six on May 25, 1979, as he was walking to school. 
Ultimately, in 2001, though he was never found, he was declared dead. So Dr. Densengerber alludes to Eitan having been swept up in these pedophile rings and their satanic ritual abuse, which at the time that this video was made, which was in the 80s, one could believe that since there had never been any leads in Eitan's case. However, on May 24, 2012, a 51-year-old man named Pedro Hernandez confessed to strangling Eitan and killing him. At the time that Eitan disappeared, Hernandez was an 18-year-old convenience store worker. He said that after he killed Eitan, he threw his remains into the garbage. So Hernandez was charged with second-degree murder. And to corroborate that, in a statement by Hernandez's sister, Nina Hernandez, she said that he had confessed to the killing at church in the early 80s. She called it, quote, an open family secret that he had confessed in the church, end quote. So on April 18, 2017, Pedro Hernandez was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 25 years. So that's what happened to Eitan Pates, a boy who vanished without a trace in 1979 and whose case went unsolved for over 30 years. And he wasn't sold into a pedophile ring or a satanic cult. He was lured and he was killed that day by a local man, a bodega worker. Again, sometimes the biggest mysteries have the most simple explanations. So that's where I'm going to leave you today. And I just want you to mull over what I talked about. I'm not asking you to jump on board and believe everything that I believe. Just look at it in a different way. Go online and research some of these other cases and see how they stack up to each other. In my next episode, we're going to talk about something that a lot of you have had questions about ever since episode 13. Who is this guy Yellowbag and why do we believe him? So we're going to delve a bit more into Yellowbag's take on everything. Until then, you can reach out to me through email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at Sarah E. Dimio. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. Faded Out is on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 22. I'm Sarah Dimio. I'll see you next time.